Now, do you want to live in victory? Do you desire to conquer? Do you wish to overcome? In the face of all obstacles, are you going to prevail? Are you going to triumph? Are you going to wear the victor's crown? Because if you do, then you've come to the right place today. Because that is the Christian life. That is Jesus' plan for his church. God is calling each and every one of us here as his people to be victorious. If you don't believe me, it's there in the Bible. Look at Revelation chapter 2. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious. And in case you think that's just a a one-off, chapter 2, verse 11. To the one who is victorious, chapter 2, verse 17. To the one who is victorious, chapter 2, verse 26. To the one who is victorious. And again, chapter 3, verse 5, chapter 3, verse 12, and chapter 3, verse 21. Victory, victory, victory. God wants you to be victorious. And you know what? Revelation chapter 2 and 3, it tells us that when we're victorious, when we've overcome, when we're conquerors, then we will live in God's blessing. That's what it says. Take a look at the Bible again. It's right there. Chapter 2, verse 7. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Chapter 2, verse 11. To the one who is victorious, they will not be hurt at all by the second death. And this pattern repeats over and over and over again, five more times. Victory and then blessing. Overcoming and then God's favor. Conquering and then experiencing God's abundance. That is God's desire for his church. That is God's desire for you. To live in his victory. Now, can I get an amen to that? (laughs) Now, why are you laughing at me? Some of you are looking at me funny. This is not normally how I preach. Some of you are wondering... Did someone slip something into Andrew's coffee this morning? But that's what the text says, doesn't it? Revelation chapter 2 and 3, they clearly state God wants his church to be victorious. And it says that after that victory comes blessing. But you're there wondering what's going on. And, And surely the key question is, what is this victory that Jesus is talking about? What does it mean for his church to overcome or to be conquerors? Now, there are some who will tell us that this is a very concrete and tangible thing. They'll paint very real pictures of what that victory will look like. They'll tell us that that victory will be health and it will be wealth and it will be a picture-perfect family and it will be belonging to a church that's big and vibrant and impressive. It will be the career and the holidays that you've always dreamed of. That's what it is to live in victory. And these people, they'll, they'll preach to us that this victory is beautiful and we can have it right now. Another pastor I know was talking to a woman in his church and she was sharing about a particularly difficult time in her life. It began when her very sick uh, and premature baby was born. Uh, not long after that, she injured her neck and she was in traction in hospital, unable to move. And then to cap it all off, just as she came out of hospital, her husband was diagnosed with cancer. And another Christian friend of this woman came up to her and uh, she went to a different church, but she said to her, it's obvious what your problem is. You haven't got enough faith. Because she said, real Christians don't have problems like that. They live in victory. What should the Christian life look like? Well, in this part of Revelation, we get a view of the Christian life 
from the perspective of the risen Lord Jesus. And you know what? I think he knows what the Christian life should look like. And you know what? The Christian life is actually going to look a lot more like Jesus' life than the picture-perfect life that some will tell us to expect. The Christian life is going to look like faithfulness to the end despite suffering and then glory to follow, just like Jesus. In uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we find these seven letters to the seven churches scattered around what was kind of modern-day Turkey. These are real letters to real people. Uh, Seven, if you remember uh, from some of the numbers we've been talking about in the book of Revelation, it means completeness or wholeness. So this is not just seven specific notes to seven churches, but this is Jesus' word for all his church. Uh, These towns were in the Roman Empire at the time, and it was a time where life was really tough for God's people. These Christians who received this letter would have felt anything but victorious. You see, the churches back then, they had a much tougher time than we've got today. On top of the bad backs and the cancer and the business problems and the relationship struggles that stress us out, the Christians back then, they lived under the emperor Diocletian. And on his currency, he had his image, and under his face, he had the text, Lord and God. How's that for humility? And so for first century Christians to not worship the emperor as God, well, that was treason. And from time to time, Christians were treated as such. They were persecuted for following Jesus and not bowing the knee to the emperor. And just around the corner, Jesus says, there's going to be a whole lot more persecution to come. And so Jesus has these words to them to help them through. These words to these seven churches, to all of Jesus' church, to help it be victorious in the face of suffering. Uh, when we, uh, as we read through the, the letters, uh, as Melundi read it so well for us, you'll have noticed that um, Jesus, he, he used a bit of a pro forma uh, in his letter writing uh, to these people. Uh, all the letters follow a similar pattern. Uh, first, they begin with an image of Jesus borrowed from uh, John's vision in chapter 1. And so each letter begins with a reminder of, of who's talking, a reminder of the pow- this powerful vision of Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. You can see that in chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel or messenger of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, if you remember last week, that's lifted right out of chapter 1, verses 1 to 12, uh, verses 12 to 13. The second letter, uh, it starts exactly the same way, a picture of Jesus, chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. These are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life again. Exactly what Jesus calls himself back in the the vision in chapter 1. And the same pattern is in every letter. Every letter begins with this reminder that this is coming from the King of Kings himself. These are the words of the risen Lord Jesus. His words to his church in his world. And after this picture from Jesus... Uh, a picture of Jesus, we get the following words. We get the words of Jesus to a suffering church. And as Jesus talks to his suffering church, what does he say? He says, I know. Uh, Take a look again at chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus says, I know your deeds. Uh, Remember, this is Jesus, the one who stands among the seven lampstands. 
And the lampstands, we were told, they represent the churches. This is the risen Lord who is among his churches. He is not above his churches or under his churches or in front or behind them. Jesus, it says, is among his church. And because he is among them, he knows. He knows. He knows the good that they are doing. He knows the bad and the ugly. He knows exactly what is going on in his church. Jesus says, I know your hardship. I know your faithfulness. I know the troubles of living in this world. I know. See, have you ever wondered whether faithfulness to Jesus is actually going to be worth it in the end? Have you ever got up in the morning and thought, is it actually going to be worth it today to remain faithful to Jesus? Now, some of us here are slightly older than the average, and some of you have been Christians for longer than I've been alive. And and I know that for some of you, in recent years, you've become painfully aware of the difficulties of following Jesus. You've been part of churches or in friendship circles that are drifting further and further away from Jesus and his word, and it's meant that you've had to make difficult decisions. And you've chosen to remain faithful and that's brought difficulty into your life and it's upset relationships and it's brought about uncertainty and it's forced you into difficult and uncomfortable conversations and circumstances. Jesus sees your faithfulness. He knows. He gets it. And what a comfort that is that Jesus knows. Others of you have been faithfully serving in ministries that go unnoticed. You've been diligently working your way for Jesus and it's a long way from the limelight. But take heart, Jesus knows. Maybe you're someone here who is single and you would love to be married. But you've chosen to remain faithful to Jesus by not considering a spouse who isn't a Christian. And as the months and years roll by, it feels like the opportunities to get married might be slipping away. And Jesus says, I know. I know. I know what faithfulness to me is costing you. I know what you're going through. I know the disappointments and the frustrations. I know, says Jesus. This isn't just a lovely idea, this is real. Christ the Lord, he stands in the midst of his churches and he knows what they're going through. He knows. But you know there's another side to the coin as well, isn't there? Our slackness, our sinfulness, our faithlessness, our half-heartedness, our selfishness. Uh, He knows. He knows. He knows our hearts. He knows our minds. He knows what is going on in his churches for good or for ill. Which is why the next thing in these letters that is on the lips of Jesus is a call to repent. He gives uh, some of the churches that he's uh, speaking to a warning. They're to stop. They're to turn from their sin. They're to turn back to him because if they don't, there are severe consequences coming. Now take a look again at verse 5 in chapter 2. See what he says to the church in Ephesus. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. 
You see, the Ephesian church it has begun well, but despite their good beginning, they have moved on and they've changed, but it's not been for the better. Uh, they used to be a great church, but now Jesus is saying they need to repent. They need to turn back before it is too late. Uh, we see the same in chapter 2, with uh, verse 16, with Pergamon. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword. Will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. And the same again to the church in Sardis, chapter three, verse three. Remember, therefore, what you received and heard. Hold fast and repent. You see, for five out of the seven of the churches that Jesus has a word for, uh, the word is repent, turn back. The threats are real out there, but the rewards will be great. And which is why all seven letters end with a promise. A promise for those who are victorious. And the the rewards are great. Take a look at some of them with me. Chapter 2, verse 7. This is a picture of the reward for those who are victorious. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Life will become like back in the Garden of Eden for them. Chapter 2, verse 11, they will not be hurt at all by the second death. They'll be safe from God's righteous judgment and will have new life in Jesus. And as they go on, as, the, as we go on with, through all the blessings, they seem to kind of circle in closer and closer to God. They become more and more intimate with God as he draws in his victorious church. And finally, in chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus says this, I will give them the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. The promise for the people of God is that if they remain victorious, they'll be brought through death and into paradise and brought in to be close and safe with Jesus. Secure with him for all eternity. You see, that is what is in store for those who overcome. So how do we make sure that we are one of these victorious ones? What do we need to watch out for? Well, the answer is right there in these letters. We can learn about the shape of victory, about uh, kind of overcoming from what the... We can learn about that from what these churches are doing right and what these churches are doing wrong. And so we're going to run through some of the themes. The first, First of all, let's look at the church of Ephesus again. We've looked at these guys for a little bit, little bit but... Kind of these guys have a terrible problem in Ephesus. Their problem is they've got plenty of zeal, but they've run out of love. They're zealots, they're full of passion, they're absolutely mad keen to have the right doctrine and have the right theology. They know all the big theological words and they can talk about infralapsarianism till the cows come home. They've, they've, they've dotted their I's and they've crossed their T's, but the problem is they've got no love. Now take a look at chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus says, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. I mean, for for the Ephesians at the start, things were different. Um, When they first came to trust in Jesus, they knew all about love. But now in their efforts to be right and to be true and to test the false apostles and to not tolerate wickedness in the church, Jesus is saying they have lost their love. They've beaten back the enemies outside. They've sent the false teachers packing, but they've been eaten away on the inside. 
And loveless Christianity, Jesus says, isn't Christianity at all. Which means that if they continue down this path, they won't be victorious. But there's also the danger of going to the other extreme. Have a look at Pergamon and Thyatira. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Pergamon is caught up in all sorts of strange and false teachings, getting into idol worship that leads kind of straight into sexual morality and a similar thing's happening in Thyatira. Now take a look at chapter 2, verse 20. Now chapter 2, verse 20. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I don't wonder if you've noticed, but the, the thing that's interesting here isn't so much that they have fallen into idolatry and, and kind of immorality themselves. Uh, as far as we can tell, most of them haven't. The problem is that they, they put up with it. The problem is that they're, they're too tolerant, says Jesus. So it doesn't matter, they say. Let's be loving. Everyone is entitled to their own opinion. Just come as you are and stay as you are. Who's to say really what is right and wrong? And it's interesting to see that the thing that Jesus has got against them is that not that they're all following this this false teacher Jezebel, it's just that they're, they're putting up with her. They're happy for her to come in and kind of gather a crowd. And Jesus is saying he is against their tolerance. They've turned a blind eye to the false teacher who is leading people astray. They've fallen asleep at the wheel. Pergamum and Thyatira, they might have plenty of love. Plenty of love, but they have lost touch with the truth. I had, the, I had one of the saddest conversations I've had in a long time yesterday. Um, I was chatting with an older Christian, um, and they had recently been at the funeral of a, of a retired uh, minister uh, at their church. And this retired minister had specified that at his funeral he wanted the gospel to be preached. He requested it, it was, and everyone knew that. But when the church leader who came to preach at this retired minister's funeral got up to preach, he said, well, John, I don't know what his name was, but John has requested that I preach the gospel at his funeral. But the thing is, the gospel has changed since he was a boy, so I can't preach that gospel today. That is, a, that is a dire situation. That is Pergamon and Thyatira. Lost touch with the truth. Asleep at the wheel. There's another problem that Jesus identifies. And that's the problem of self-satisfaction. We see this in Sardis and Laodicea. The two churches, they look great from the outside, but they are rotten on the inside. Two churches that run seminars on how to be an effective church Pastors come from everywhere to sit down at their feet and learn. Uh, But take a look at chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. And Laodicea, chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. It's a pretty vivid picture. Uh, Jesus says here, you think you're pretty flashy but you're like that insipid cup of tea that's been sitting there for too long. I know your deeds, says Jesus. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one. 
So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Verse 17, you say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Now those are sobering words. They're sobering words. I think they're particularly sobering words for a church like ours. Ours is a new church. It's a growing church. Ours is a church that's got momentum and energy. And I've been asked at a conference to stand up and share about what we're doing here at City on a Hill and, and why it might be working. But Jesus is saying all that glitters is not gold. It's not the reputation that we have with outsiders that matters. It's the reputation that we have with Jesus that matters. It's our faithfulness to him and to the word of his spirit. That is what it is all about, says Jesus. But now time for some good news. There are two of the seven churches that receive nothing but praise from God. And one of the things I read during the week was it kind of only two of the seven have got things right. We think that there's problems with the church today. There's been problems with the church the whole time. And only two of the seven are kicking goals as far as Jesus is concerned. There are these two churches that receive nothing but praise from Jesus, Smyrna and Philadelphia. He doesn't have a bad thing to say about them. And that's a real contrast to the other five. Uh, And they give us a glimpse. They give us a view of what it is to be victorious. The church in Smyrna, it's doing it real tough. And yet, Jesus has nothing but praise for them. Uh, Take a look at chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9, Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. You see, the fact is, everything is going wrong for these people. They are persecuted, they are poor, they're, they're they're about to be thrown into prison, but in the eyes of Jesus... They are rich. They have got everything they need. They are the ones who are on track to being victorious. There's just a few things they need to keep on doing. Verse 10, first they need to be not afraid of what they're about to suffer because they're about to be persecuted even more. And then the second thing is they need to remain faithful, Jesus says, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as as your victor's crown. You see, this is what it looks like This is what it actually means to be victorious. To be victorious in Jesus' eyes. It's to be faithful to Jesus through tough times, through poor times, through persecution times, even to the point of death. Keep going right to the end, especially when you're feeling most down and out. That is how to be a winner in the Christian life. That is how to live in victory, is to remain faithful to Jesus. And so it's not about power and it's not about influence and it's not about striving for more and it's not about putting on a good show and it's not about being relentlessly positive. It's not about any of that. Those who receive the victor's crown, those who walk in victory, are those who remain faithful to Jesus, faithful to the point of death, never being zealous without love, or loving without truth, but remaining faithful to Jesus. Not being flashy on the outside and dead on the inside, but remaining faithful to Jesus, 
to the end. Faithful in standing up for the truth. Not excusing false and dangerous ideas. Faithful in loving each other deeply. And kind of not letting kind of right theology get us off the hook of actually having to care for the people around us. Remaining faithful to Jesus, to his message, to his gospel, to his people, even when the going gets tough. That is what victory looks like. But we'll have one last look to see what Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, the church that has the highest praise of them all. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 8. I know your deeds, says Jesus. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength. Yet you you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. He says to them, you may not be strong, but you have stuck with it. And verse 10, you have kept my command to endure patiently. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is to come. And verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. You see, this is what it means to be victorious. This is what it's all about. This is what it means to overcome. It's about not denying Jesus in the face of persecution. When the going gets tough, keep on testifying about Jesus. Keep on trusting Jesus. Keep on following him and putting his word into practice. And even the churches here that are weakest and the least impressive and that have the most trouble, they refuse to deny Jesus. And so they will be victorious. Because overcoming, it's not about being prosperous, it's not about never getting sick, it's not about having the picture-perfect life and family. Being victorious is sticking with Jesus, even when the going gets tough, even when the tide is going out, even when everything is pushing you in the other direction and you're feeling down and out. It's remain faithful to Jesus. See, finishing the race, that is how we are victorious. Finishing the race, remaining faithful to Jesus. Uh, the 1968 Mexico Olympic Games, uh, there was a marathon runner uh, from Tanzania. His name was John Akwari. Now, John's name isn't written up in any of the record books, but yet he's the most remembered guy from the marathon that year, uh, even though he came in dead last. Uh, John was running and he was kind of doing well at the 19 kilometre mark of the race when he fell. And he fell pretty hard. He gashed his calf and he dislocated his knee. Now, most runners would give up at that point. But after a few minutes, John picked himself up. He bandaged his leg. He popped his knee back in. Which sounds painful. Um, and what did he do? He kept on running. He kept on running. And by the time he reached the stadium, the, the race had long finished. The winners had come in over an hour ahead of him. The medal ceremony had already taken place. Uh, and night was falling and, the, and most of the spectators had gone home and the officials had almost packed up for the night when a lone figure of a runner appeared at the stadium gates and he carted his banged and bodied around every step in agony. He, the, he did the required laps of the stadium before at last crossing the finishing line uh, where he collapsed as the, the small clap, the crowd cheered and clapped him on. Uh, The next day, John was interviewed by the world media. And when it comes to marathons, lots of athletes drop out. 20 people had dropped out of that marathon. Um, And almost all of them have far less reasons to drop out than John did. So the media asked him, why didn't you stop? 
You weren't going to win. You weren't even going to get a medal. Why, why didn't you stop? Lakwari said this. He said, My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start this race. My country sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. And so he did. And that, my friends, is what Jesus wants from us. That is the true picture of the Christian life. Not cruising into the stadiums with your arms in the air, a winner in every aspect of life, finishing off without a scratch on you, fresh as a daisy. No, Jesus is telling us soberly and truthfully that to win in the Christian life is to strive and struggle to the end, to remain faithful to Jesus despite the difficulty, to keep on going so that we may wear the victor's crown because he says, it'll be difficult now, but boy, will it be worth it. Boy, will it be worth it. Be faithful, says Jesus, even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Will you pray with me as we ask for Jesus' help to be the faithful people that he calls us to be? Our Heavenly Father, we, um, we are so tempted from the outside to want to twist your message into thinking that uh, it's going to be health and wealth and prosperity for us now. But Lord, why would it be any different for us than it was for Jesus? Lord, help us to follow him faithfully. Help us to endure the shame and the suffering and the persecution and the marginalization. Help us to endure that all so that we might remain faithful to you, so that we might finish the race, so that we might receive the victor's crown, the crown of life, life with you in the new creation where we will be freed from persecution and suffering and pain, where we will meet with you, where we'll be comforted by you, the one who knows what life is like in this world, not just because you're amongst the churches, but because you have lived it as well. Lord, give us comfort for this life. Give us courage by your spirit to keep going. Help us to remain faithful to you as you have been so faithful to us. We pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.